other nonprofit participates in the Amazon Smile program, but we don't get a lot of money from it. Any tips on maximizing it? So this is this falls under the category of um, passive income, like stuff where you don't really do a whole lot. And then every once in a while, somebody mails you, mails you a check for $13 or something like that. So if you're not familiar with the Amazon Smile program, you can convince people to, when they log into Amazon, to use a special web address that starts with the word smile. It's like smile.amazon.com. And then a half a percent of the purchase price of whatever they buy gets to go to your favorite nonprofit. And that that's it's basically... Amazon's way of not having to do any big grant programs and to be able to say that they support the nonprofit sector. And I can't remember this. It's, it's a lot of money, but I mean, Amazon makes a lot of money, but it's in the, it's in the tens of millions or maybe hundreds of millions or something like that about how much money they've given since they started the Amazon small program. Um, the challenge with this, and this is a good question for one of our fundraising experts is how much time do you want to spend on something that's going to give you $13? That's going to give you a half a percent. So, so if you think about it, I mean, I, I don't know offhand, but I think if I checked my Amazon account to see how much money I've spent in Amazon over the last year, it's probably, probably less than $5,000. So half a percent of $5,000 is what, 25 bucks? Oh boy. So, yeah. so how much, how much, how much work do you want to do to get somebody to give you some sort of passive $25 thing that doesn't have any constant relationship with you? Um, is that good for you? Is that, should you be spending that time and energy on something that can make you more than $25 or can turn that $25 donor into somebody else? Well, I love that point because I think in, you know, these days we are competing for everybody's attention, right? There's so much, so many distractions it's information overload. So when you have an opportunity to communicate with a donor, are you going to communicate with them and choose one of your communications is about Amazon smile versus something else with a higher return. And it's, I just don't think it's, um, I don't know. I personally, I don't mind it passively being on a website, like whatever, it's a good reminder, but to actually send any proactive communication about it, I don't know, candidly feels a little bit like not, not the most fruitful or the best idea. Yeah. The, Amazon does to answer the question. Amazon does provide like a button that you can convince people to attach to their browser. So when they go to Amazon, they click that button. Interestingly, as everybody moves to mobile, they do not provide the same service for mobile. So if you're using the Amazon shopping cart mobile app to shop and do stuff like that, there's no way to connect it to Amazon Smile if you're doing it that way. So it kind of gives you, I mean, I mean, yeah, somebody from Amazon call us and give us a different answer, but sounds to me like they're just phoning it in. And, yeah. and if that's, I don't know that I'd want to put any of my no. um, money behind somebody phoning it in. I also think this is an opportunity to educate. So this is a good example of people get really excited and, and boards and no disrespect to boards. Boards get really excited when they hear about stuff like this, because it means, oh, good, we don't have to fundraise. Yep. There's this great Amazon Smile program. So having some of those um you know, figures at your fingertips to be able to share with board members. Do they really understand the reality of it is, is important because I think this is where I see organizations end up with 10 things like an Amazon smile. And then none of them are, I mean, nothing's effective, right? Because you've got everybody excited about all these one-offs that really don't do anything for your organization. Yeah. And it goes back to the, the, that fundraising is hard like the, the, the sense that fundraising is hard and that it's easier to just sell somebody something, yeah. which is why we see gala events and all kinds of other sort of profit-making activities. Um, so this, this kind of falls into that category of one that, you know, you really need to think about, like, is my time better spent doing mm-hmm. something else? 
Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. This is Stacey Wedding, and I'm here with my lovely, wonderful, smart as all get out co-host, Andy Shurek. Oh, How shucks. did you like all those compliments? <laughs> and um, a special thanks to Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, who makes this possible. So we're uh, here at their service and here at your service. So make sure to send us your questions and uh, visit us at NonprofitEverything.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J. Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you, Brenda J. Stout CPA. Thank you, Brenda. What type of buzzwords or language can you include in a grant to cover general and administrative costs? Or is it best just to include a line item in the budget? Is 10% GNA a reasonable request for coverage per grant? I steer away from buzzwords because the challenge with buzzwords is nobody really knows. So if you're trying to kind of put this soft touch on the GNA, I think the person reading the proposal is sometimes scratching their head going, what are they talking about here when you try to use some cutesy term? I don't know if that's what this question's about, but some sort of cutesy term or yeah. sort of buzz phrase, Buzzword, like- right? Like what? Like, just call a spade a spade, I guess, is kind of my, because at the end of the day, I also think we need to educate funders on, yes, there are general and admin costs. And I know in the grant world, I've seen 10% um, anywhere from like 10 to 15% as sort of a rule of thumb, Uh, you know, even though sometimes it's more than that, but that's what people feel like is appropriate to put in a proposal. Um, But I'd love to, I'd love to pitch this to someone who does this day in and day out and might have even a different perspective. That's a great idea. Hey, everybody. It's Stacey Wedding here, and we have a special guest today. I'm so excited. Uh, she is well-known in the nonprofit sector and is uh, quite the pro, especially as it, when it comes to anything and everything to do with grants. So um, we're here to welcome Beth Rubens, and um, Beth is a nonprofit management, grant fundraising, and a philanthropy expert. Uh, she's got over 14 years experience procuring and managing grant funds, as well as developing programs, managing nonprofit operations, and teaching on the topics of nonprofit fundraising and organizational development. Welcome, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. We're so glad to have you here. So as a grants professional, Beth has raised and managed over $35 million in grant support for a variety of different organizations, and she's taught university and professional development courses on everything from grants development, fundraising, and nonprofit management. Uh, has also uh, spoken, as you can imagine, across the country and here locally in Nevada um, for a variety of of organizations just because she is such the expert. So once again, Beth, welcome. If I didn't tee that up well enough, you add something. What else did I forget, Beth? (laughs) No, that's pretty comprehensive. It's sort of, I fell into grants after um, getting my master's in social work, and this is all I've been doing for the last almost 15 years now. So it's pretty comprehensive. One of the things I love about you, though, Beth, and I can say this because we've, you know, we've worked together before, is you have such a, um, you know, sometimes you meet grant 
grant professionals and they're quiet and they're very introverted and they're sort of, you know, right, this certain personality type, nothing against those listening who may be in that field. But Beth, you're like this really bubbly, personable, super, like you can talk about anything and everything. And, and that's one thing that makes it super fun to, to work with you. So. Well, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Yeah, grant writers definitely do get that reputation for being sort of, you know, introverted and we prefer to stay in our offices with the door closed, but actually think there's a lot of value in getting out there and working together collaboratively with people inside and outside your agency. So everybody get out and do some more stuff. Hey, there you go. There's your pep talk. Okay, so... Yeah. With that, I know we are on a limited schedule, so let me reach. Um, let me read you this question that we we got. We thought um, you probably can shed some light, and there's kind of two questions in here, so take it how you want it. Um, here's a question: What type of buzzwords or language can you include in a grant to cover general and administrative costs, or is it best to just include a line item in the budget and call it what it is? That's sort of the first question. So um, to start off, I want to clarify a couple of terms. Um, this person has used general and administrative costs, and that's a perfectly acceptable term. What you'll also see in the grants field is indirect costs, um, general operating, operations, um, administrative. All of those terms are sort of interchangeable. Um, in the grants world, they mean essentially the same thing. And really what they mean is the types of costs that an organization has to undertake to do regular business. Essentially, it's the cost of doing business that cannot be directly assigned to the program. So I think it's important that people understand the context of what those costs are. And it's things like utilities, it's things like human resources and payroll, um, it's things like general office supplies, salaries for executives, those types of accounting and legal expenses, all of those types of things that you have to have to do business, but don't necessarily get assigned to particular programs or services. So that's one thing to sort of start off with. Um, as far as the language that people might use to encapsulate these terms, um, it's really, uh, one thing is it's specific to the organization. There are certain operating costs that some organizations have that others don't. So depending on which costs your organization has specifically that aren't attributable to the program, you need to outline what those are for the funder, um, and they will vary depending on what your agency undertakes as their general operating expenses. So a good uh, person to ask within your organization is your fiscal manager um, or somebody who deals with the finances because they know what those costs are. Um, so my suggestion is get a list of what those costs are and then you can use that information in your description. You may want to include it in the proposal narrative. You may want to put it in the budget narrative. That's really up to you as the grant writer. But I encourage you to get a list of everything and then you can find ways to describe it in your proposal narrative. That is great advice. And I've got a couple follow-up questions to that. So one of them um, being, you know, if someone were to get, if someone receives uh, in-kind donations, is that something that you would encourage them to include in their budget? Um, and, you know, I know there's really no black or white answer here, right? There's different kinds of, there's budget, right? You know, RFP process that says create your own budget. And then there's ones that say, no, fill in our budget lines. But let's say you're starting from scratch and creating your own budget and budget narrative. So is that something you'd recommend that they include as some of those in-kind expenses that are being offset through those in-kind donations? 
Yeah, it again, you're totally right. It definitely does depend. But if my general rule is if the in-kind goods or services are of material support to the organization or the program, like if it's a if it's a good chunk of your budget that you would otherwise be purchasing that you're getting as an in-kind donation, then it's important to include. Um, but also I'd say it really depends from organization to organization on your policies and procedures. There are organizations that feel and think very differently about in-kind. So obviously you'll be acting in accordance with whatever your organization's already doing. Um, but whether or not you take into account in-kind is, you know, if you're receiving you know, significant professional pro bono services in, say, the legal field, obviously that's a really important cost to include in your budget because that's an expense you don't have to pay for if you're receiving it as a donation. That makes sense. And, you know, I'm also thinking for that person who may be developing this program budget from scratch uh, and, and they're wondering, because I have a sneaky feeling, I don't know who wrote this question, but... I have a sneaky feeling they're wondering, is there a sexier way to, like, should we just call it general and admin or any of those other terms, indirect, operating, all the stuff you said, or is there a way to flower it up because we know that some funders are hesitant about, you know, supporting those kinds of expenses? So what's been your yeah. thought? That's a great question. And, and with organizations that are applying to funders that might be less inclined to support general operating or indirect costs, what I suggest is you take a look at the division of those costs across all of the programs in your organization and see if there's ways to build it in or sort of charge it against your general program operations. And so it doesn't have to then be called out as a separate line item. Um, but the other thing is, you know, as far as terminology, if you are, um, allowed to include general operating or overhead expenses in your grant proposal, absolutely do it and call it what it is. Because funders nowadays, like I started my career 15 years ago, and I was seeing funders that were absolutely, we will not pay for salaries in a program, we will certainly not pay for overhead expenses. Funders are more and more uh, aware of the fact that that's the cost of doing business, and organizations need to have this support in order to do the work that they're doing. So, um, more and more, it's not it's a non-issue. Um, but as far as coming up with new language, I would say just go with the standard. Pick one that works for you, whether it's indirect or overhead, general operating, administration, you know, whatever it is you call it. Um, as long as you're calling it something consistent with your organization or with the funder, you're in pretty good shape. I appreciate that advice because I think sometimes we try to make it too complicated and then the funder, you know, being on the other side as you're a funder or grant maker and you read it, you're like, what are they talking about here, right? You know, here's this weird category and now I'm super confused about that. So it's sometimes like just keep it straightforward and simple. Yes, exactly. And um, most funders that you're applying to are aware that indirect cost is a cost of doing business and, and, as long as you're outlining, like I said a little bit earlier, when you are outlining what is included, so the types of things, whether it's um, rent and facilities use, whether it's utilities, office supplies, executive salaries, those payroll expenses, whatever those things are, as long as you're including a description of what's in that amount and what's in that percentage, then you're okay. Okay, great. And then this, um, gosh, this is turning into much more of a math type question than I expected, but uh, <laughs> is the other part two of, the, of this question that the person asked was, is 10% GNA a reasonable request or coverage per grant? 
that's a great question. Um, and there's a two-part answer to this. So the first part is the reasonable amount is often determined by the funder. So the funder will say you can request up to a maximum of insert fill in the blank percentage. You know, you typically it's anywhere from 15 to 25%. 20% is pretty standard for a lot of funders. So if the funder says you may request no more than 20%, um, I always encourage folks to absolutely request that maximum. The reason being is those are unrestricted dollars and it's really difficult in the grants world to raise unrestricted dollars. So you can spend them where you need to spend them. So if they allow 20%, put in 20% is always my, my baseline advice. The second part of that is some funders will say you cannot request more than your current overhead rate. And a lot of people don't know how to calculate their overhead rate. They don't know what it is. So the way you calculate that is you go back to your audited financial statements, you add your management and general expenses total to your fundraising total, and then you divide that added number by your organization's total expenses. And that will result in a percentage, and that's your operating overhead rate. So if I, uh, for instance, I worked with an organization where we were operating at an extremely lean, um, almost 8%. 8% is extremely low for uh, an overhead rate. It's pretty healthy to be anywhere from 15 to 25% as an organization. Um, but when I would encounter grant funders that would say you can only request your organization's maximum, I would be stuck at only being able to request that 8%. So ideally, you want to figure out the method that allows you to ask for the most unrestricted dollars because you may wind up driving that back into the program for which you're requesting funding, or it may go into the organization's overall general budget. Great. No, that's really, I appreciate that advice. So I guess be, you know, instead of trying to slash numbers for those who are listening, try to be really um, honest and upfront about the numbers and it's okay to ask for what you need as long as you're, you know, putting some, like you said it, Beth, in the grant narrative, some justification or some explanation so people understand what that entails. Exactly. And people also have to remember that the allowable indirect is not um, in addition to whatever maximum amount the funder has said. So if a funder is giving out a $100,000 grant, and they have a maximum allowable indirect of 20%, you're not going to be asking for $120,000. You're going to be asking for $20,000 to go to indirect and $80,000 to go to program services. So um, that's just another thing that people sometimes bump into as an issue. You know, you brought up a topic about this unrestricted and how, you know, it's challenging, especially in the grants world, to raise unrestricted dollars. And I'm sure you've gotten these questions back. I know I have one of the most common being, uh, how do I raise money for, right, some of these, you know, indirect uh, expenses or technology upgrades or capacity building of some sort? Have you found uh, any secret tips and tricks you would share with everybody about how to do that through grants or is it yeah. just not possible? <laughs> it is possible. It's about the way you frame it, I believe. So most organizations are running one or multiple specific programs. So we do this work with this population and this is our structure, this is how we um, deliver services to the community. Um, but what they don't pay attention to is funding. We exist overall and for example, an organization might have three distinct programs, but we're one organization that offers three programs. 
you should have four master grant proposals. You should have a master grant proposal for each of your three programs and a master grant proposal for your organization overall that describes holistically all of the work that you do. You can use that holistic master proposal to develop um, uh, funding proposals for general operating support because we can't do this very specific thing unless we get funding to do all of the rest of the things that we need to do. So it's, it's not about saying we need computer upgrades. It's we need to exist to do the work that we need to do. We need to be the most efficient to do, deliver the best services to our community. So it's about the ways in which you frame it and describe it more so than about, I think people get caught up in trying to make general operating requests a specific program request. And it's not, it's its own beast and it's, it's a little bit different. Um, but it's, you, you use the exact same tools and tactics that you do when you're describing program services. It's just talking about the agency overall and your services overall. That's great. That's great. I, I hope that helps some, some people because I know everybody's desperate for those kinds of dollars and, uh, they, especially in the, in the funding world, it can be difficult. So I like, I like that message, how you frame it, how you package it, right? Sharing a story to some degree. Exactly. And I think um, this is where us grant writers can learn a lot from traditional development folks. I think there's a lot more crossover in things like case statements and, you know, uh, general marketing messages that we give to, um, you know, individual donors and major donors. I think there's a lot that us grant folks don't take from um, our peers in the development world that we can really learn from, and especially in that space. Once again, sage advice from, from a true pro. Is there anything else that you want to add in closing or anything um, that might just be for someone just getting started in the world of grant writing? Any tips you would give them? Um, for someone that's just getting started, I really, really recommend the resources at the Foundation Center. They have um, online resources. They've got a whole website, um, a lot of really interesting stuff. Here in Southern Nevada, Anne is a great resource, and so is the Southern Nevada Nonprofit Information Center. That's at the Clark County Library. Um, there are courses and lots of places you can go for more information. You just have to sort of do a bit of research, and it's out there. Well, thank you for your time and sharing your expertise. And uh, gosh, you are a, such a gift to our community. So appreciate you taking your time today, Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Our organization is finally big enough to need a financial audit. How do we go about selecting an audit firm? Oh, congratulations. That's good news. That means you're finally big enough to start doing things wrong. <laughs> uh, or the people are starting to pay attention because an audit is a great thing. I mean, even if you're tiny, if you can afford an audit when you're tiny, um, it's it's that extra step when you're going for grant applications oh, and yes. stuff like that. They want to see, you know, if Funders you're big enough to get that. an audit, they're like, oh, this is good. They, it is. It's that stamp of approval. So so to pick an audit firm, I mean, you can go do a giant RFP and spend a lot of time researching how you're going to do it. I think the way, honestly, the mo way most organizations do it is they uh, look at all of the other organizations in their area and they see who is doing those audits. <laughs> um, and then they they that will give you a list of three or four firms that, that have that experience and know how to do it. And then you can go out of those people and, and get some more information. Um, the, the, the other thing I would look for when you're, when you're trying to pick an audit firm, you might want to call around too and talk to people that you know in the sector that have got audits from some of those 
firms because the you know this is probably just my personal lens but but if you if your audit is always clean and there are no findings and everything is perfect you're not getting your money's worth on that audit Absolutely. so you want you want an auditor that's actually like understands it really really well is really serious about it and is there to help you get better mm-hmm. um i just i think a couple of podcasts ago we had a couple of questions about fraud about things like check washing and that's the kind of thing that your auditor will help you proactively take care of. They will ask you questions about, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? And that will give you the, oh, why do you want me to do that? Oh, it's because I could potentially lose money there because they're the ones that are keeping an eye out for those kinds of things. So I would look for the ones that um, are, are easy to work with, are very, very knowledgeable, but are not there to just you know, rubber stamp what you did. That's, that's, it's not worth it. If, if you're going to do that... Um, I mean, you need to get out of the sector, to be honest. Well, and <laughs> and interesting about um, funders and, and how they pay attention to audits. Uh, I actually know of an organization whose um, founder sort of has two residences, right? One in um, a different state and one here and sort of goes back and forth and is uh, an executive director as well. And long story short, uh, when she started the organization, she of course went to where sort of her home state was and, and got this, you know, audit firm lined up. Um, from the very beginning, she just believed in like, I'm going to find the way to just make sure everything's audited. So it was a principle for regardless mm-hmm. of size, which I really respected. But interestingly enough, the funder, um, one of the, their large funders uh, just a couple of years ago started to question, why is your audit firm not in Nevada and is actually somewhere else? And was was really sort of disturbed about the fact that it wasn't an audit firm in Nevada. So it's also important to think about sort of the, the perception or the impressions that um, that can give. I also know in the industry, and I don't know about you, Andy, and your work as, as CFO in the past, but... There are some firms that are really known for being, if you can get a clean audit um, or, or this firm gives you a clean audit, you know that you've gotten, you know, you've gone through this comprehensive analysis, whereas there's some auditors, they're a little bit more lax, which is not a good thing, but that literally have reputations in the community for being a little bit more lax. Um, and that doesn't help. And people know that, like that word gets around, um, back to what you said about kind of calling your peers and stuff. So I think it's really uh, important to choose an auditor wisely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree completely. And we probably should clarify too, when we talk about findings, I mean, you still need to get a clean audit, right? Yes. You still oh, need right. the auditors right. to say that the, the financial statements are in all material respects. Good, yes, right? yes. You, you want that at yes. the beginning. And what you, what you also want is you want a management letter and you want the other information to pr- be provided to your board that's not necessarily in the piece of paper yeah. that, that you hand to other people that gives you these lists of things that you need to be working on. So, so yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to fail your audit, right? Um, right. But, that's bad. But, but if you do, you know, that's, that's, eh, that's a big, it's a big flag learning. and it's something that you need to figure <laughs> out too. But yeah, no, I think Stacy and I agree. Don't go for the easy ones no. because they're easy. The other thing about getting a local auditor, um, they're going to probably want to do field work. A lot of times they're going to want to come to your office and fish through the files and that's going to cost you a lot more money if you're flying in somebody from Cleveland. So I don't, I don't even know why you'd want to do that. All right, that's it. You did it. You got to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Just to remind you, Nonprofit Everything is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. So go check out AllianceForNevadaNonprofits.com. 
uh, website is relatively new. There's a bunch of cool stuff on there, so go check it out. If you're not a member, please be a member. There are a bunch of ways that you can support this podcast. You can send us a question. You can share it with someone. Uh, one of the cool things that we're starting to do now is if you go to the Facebook page, there will be individual questions occasionally posted, so that makes it easier to forward to somebody so you're not saying, hey, I'd like you to spend an hour, or not an hour, but a half an hour with Andy and Stacy. So now you can spend like three minutes because that's we're much more bearable in short amounts. Right? <laughs> Bite-sized chunks. Exactly. Uh, but thanks for listening, and we will see you in a couple of weeks. 